The following is provided by Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and available at itunes.covenant.edu. Our speaker for this year's NEO Conference is a man with a remarkable biography, a remarkable present life and ministry, and by the grace and providence of God, a remarkable role to play in the unfolding story of God's church around the world. Now, let me say simply here, by way of introduction, that he is a man whose life has been framed and shaped and energized by relationships. His grandfather's notable leadership gifts, his father's and mother's fervent and courageous Christian faith, his spiritual mentor, who was martyred for his faith in 1977, his wife Phoebe and their children, the people of his diocese in Kampala, whom he leads and serves as Mindy Bells told us on Monday, and the faithful brothers and sisters in the faith throughout Uganda, Africa, and around the world with whom he has been called to speak boldly and clearly for the gospel, for the gracious truth and authority of the Holy Scriptures, and for the glory of Jesus Christ. This week we have the opportunity to have our lives framed and shaped and energized by him. Your grace, we thank God that you are with us. We praise God for your wise and godly leadership in the worldwide Anglican communion and in the global church. And we pray for God's rich blessing on you and us so that Jesus Christ would be exalted as you minister among us this week. With gratitude and joy, I am happy to introduce to you the Archbishop of the Church of Uganda, the Most Reverend Henry Luke Arambi. have a prayer. Father, we lift the name of Jesus Christ, the only name that is above all names, the name that is given to us for our salvation and entry into your presence, the name that enables us to meet God in human flesh and understand that God who loves us has loved us from eternity to eternity. Father, thank you for this time. I pray that you will loosen my tongue and fill my heart with your love, that I sit and stand before your people, that your glory will be here. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Dr. Nielsen, I want to thank you. Thank you, first of all, for allowing us to come into this wonderful college in a beautiful place. For the very first time, I've never been here myself because I could not come. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to come. We arrived at 2 a.m. this morning, flying from Jacksonville to here. So we had a few hours of sleep, and that's okay. <laughs> and we are so thankful that God can give us his time together for the next two, three days. My dear friends, I am full of joy, full of joy to be here full of joy to see many faces of young, promising people of this nation. It's my delight to introduce to you my chaplain, my, my personal assistant, my travel mate. I work with him. Onesimus Asimwe 
He's a teacher by profession. He's a married man. He's a father of three. He's a man who Jesus brought to him personally. And I want to give him a few minutes to open his heart to you so that when you see the two of us walking around, you will know the kind of man we are. And we just want to be open with you. The next few days, I love to meet as many of you as possible. I love to talk with as many of you as possible. I like you to know us. Because this is the beginning, I believe, of a very long time relationship that God is forging today. Onesimus, would you please like to share briefly with his friends? Because I will not be able to greet each one of you, uh, at least with a, a hug or a, a handshake, I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbor and do that on my behalf. Uh, so turn to your neighbor and, and give him a little hug or a hand or, on my behalf, please. <laughs> okay, that's one thing. And secondly, turn to your neighbor again, look straight into their face and tell them you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I was born 41 years ago in a family of 11 siblings, all by the same mother, and uh, I happen to be the 11th. Uh, it was a Christian family. My father was a lay reader in an Anglican church, and my mother was a devout Christian, and she made a lot of influence in my life. My mother, in particular, made a very, very wonderful Christian influence in my life, but that did not make me a Christian myself because God does not have grandchildren. He has only children. So the fact that I was born to <coughs> Christians, Christian parents did not make me a Christian myself. So I lived my own way of life. I grew up. Like all youth, I had my own dreams, my passions. I remember at the age of 11, the enemy whispered to me and said, Onesimus, you just enjoy life as a youth um, the way you want. Just choose the way you want to live. And when you're old and you've grown old and toothless, maybe at the age of 70 or so, you can then give your life to Jesus and then die. My father used to preach a lot, not only about heaven, but also about hell. And so I knew that hell somehow was a reality, and I didn't want to go to hell. But the enemy was telling me, you will get born again just when you're about to die. And so when I was 16, I was at high school already. My mother passed on. She went to be with the Lord. And my hope was shattered because I had put all my hope in my mother. And I remember 
two days after her burial, a so-called friend of mine comes and says to me, Onesimus, I have got what can take away sorrow from you. I said, what on earth is that? Because that is what I longed for then. And he pulled out from his pocket a bottle of a local uh, gin. It's called waragi. It's very strong stuff. And he said, if you can swallow this, if you can take this, it will take away your sorrow. And so I swallowed it. It's a very strong, I'd never taken alcohol in my life. And I could feel it burn my throat until it, it settled in my stomach. I could feel it. And it looks like I took too much in so short a time. And like he said, all the sorrow went because in the nick of time, I was up on my heels, went around, picked on some girl, and that night for the first time committed irresponsible sex. And uh, so from that time, like he said, I went wild, I was on the rampage. If, if you learn drinking alcohol on that gene, then there is nothing you cannot drink. I drank all the alcohol I could lay my hands on. I smoked every kind of cigarette. The Dan Hills, the Rothmans, the Sportsman, Sweet Mentho, the Cigar. And so I became addicted to nicotine, to alcohol. I joined dancing clubs in school. I was uh, nicknamed DJ, disc jockey. <laughs> Not because I was operating the machines, but because of my skills of dancing. I used to win dancing competitions. In our days, the style was, uh, was break dance, you know, you dance like a robot. Until 1988, I lived that kind of life until 1988. It was on the 8th of January when I was alone in a house doing some painting. I did art and design at university, not theology or stuff like that. And while I was alone in the house with a, singer, a cigarette uh, dangling between my fingers, I loved my fag, the Lord spoke to me in an audible voice. And I heard someone asking me a question, do you not know that your body is the temple of God? So I turned around, thought there was some gentleman behind me and there was nobody. And somehow the Spirit of God opened my eyes to know that this must be God. So I knelt down and made a quick prayer. I had never prayed, I think, for like 10 years or so. I said, Lord, this must be your voice. And so I invite you to come in my heart, be my Lord and my Savior. And he did come. Uh, that day, I handed over to him what I loved most. He transformed my life. I had a condition. I had peptic ulcers. And that condition went that day. It disappeared, just vanished. He healed my diseases, he saved me, he transformed my life, he gave me the ability to resist what I could not do without. 
had never touched a cigarette since then, never tasted alcohol since that time. And the Lord has graciously used me. I, you've heard I happen to be the chaplain to the Archbishop by grace. Now, this is, I'm the first lay chaplain to the Archbishop. I'm not ordained, and it's a long story. But I thank God for his saving grace. I thank God that he's enabled me to come over here. Uh, this is the second, my second time in, uh, in America. But I think Covenant College has found a soft spot in my heart. God bless you. Dr. Nielsen, I want to say thank you again that I can come to this college, bring this young man, meet with you young people and the faculty. I'm asking God to help me put in a nutshell all the things that I should deliver to you. And I just pray that he'll help me do that. But this morning, let me begin by saying that I'm a married man, married to a woman called back home, Mama Phoebe. Is there a Phoebe here in this hall? Any Phoebe around? No, okay. 35 years ago, we got married. We have four children, two boys and two girls, three with us, one with the Lord. Our eldest daughter, Helen, is 34. Our middle son, Bob, is gonna be 33 in December, and our youngest baby alive is 29. We live in Kampala. I became the Archbishop of the Church of Uganda nearly four years ago. Prior to that, I was the founder bishop of Nebi, which is way up north, western part of my country, very close to Congo. I worked as a bishop for 10 years. Prior to that, I was Archdeacon. Archdeacon is between a priest and a bishop, and he does the donkey work for the bishop. I did that for six years. Before then, I was a youth pastor, and I did that for six years as well, and so Aaron, we are really soulmate, I think. Prior to that, I was a teacher. I taught for four years. I was trained for four years, I taught for four years, and then I resigned. In four years, I was a classroom teacher, a deputy head, and a head, and then God called me out of that place. Prior to that, I was a church-going Anglican, Born and bred as an Anglican, that doesn't make any sense. Except that I went to a church and I went to sing and listen to the word of God and I preached my first sermon when I was 11 year, years old. My father taught me the scriptures and I read the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation so many times. I love the scriptures, I memorize the scriptures, but I did not know the God of my church. I went through the motion of going into church. I came to understand that you can go to church 52 weeks a year and not know the God of that church. That was me. Then one day when I was in college, a very smashing, dynamic preacher came. He was such a wonderful musician. He was a guitarist. He caught my attention because in my Anglican tradition, guitars were not the thing you do in church. It's either organ or pianos. Now this man sang so well. 
And it captivated my heart. And of course, at that point, I used to sit at the back, not because I'm a tall guy, but because I also wanted to gauge if the speaker is a good guy, I'll pay attention. If not, I've got asleep. And I want to ask your friends not to fall asleep, please. <laughs> this man began to sing songs, and there were songs which are so lively. One of them was, I'm so glad that Jesus set me free. Oh, I'm so glad that Jesus set me free. Oh, I'm so glad that, and he was so happy. I listened to him. But when he preached about the prodigal son, you know the story. This young man who came to his father and said, I need what belongs to me and I want to go and go now. The young man was given whatever belonged to him and he went very far according to Jesus. This is a parable. And when he went out there, he wasted everything in loose living. And then when he had finished everything that he had, a famine came and the boy was in need and he was willing to do what I would believe a normal Jewish young man could not do, do a job that was below his standard. And that is looking after pigs, very unclean animal. And Jesus says he was even willing to eat the food that the pigs ate. It is at that desperate moment when he was low that he remembered home and he began to think, how many of my father's servants have food and enough to spare? And now I die here with hunger. I will arise and go back to my father and tell my father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. And I don't know how long he thought about that. Then he rose up one day and began going home. You know, I could imagine that young man. I could imagine him leaving home, really running and getting away, just like every other young person today. You want your freedom, don't you? I want my freedom too. He ran away from home because he wanted to be free. He took everything that he had, and now he wasted it. I could imagine coming home was so hard because there was nothing to show for. He had lost everything, including his dignity. And I, I imagine from back home, back home, if you have association with pigs, you smell. Back home, if you have association with pigs, there are these little flea thing called jiggers, and I, I just can imagine the, those, that fellow too had jiggers on his feet. But was coming home. He was coming home. So he began coming home slowly but surely and with a determination. And he came home. Jesus tells me in that parable as a man was explaining, the father saw him from a distance. He got up. A dignified father in the Oriental would never get up. He ran. He would not even run. He ran and he embraced his son. And the young fellow rehearsed his words and he began to tell his father, Father, perhaps not even loudly, full of shame, very worn out, by hunger and fatigue. I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But at that point, Father said, quick, bring a robe and put it on him and have sandals on his feet and a ring on his finger. Now, what I find very interesting with Jesus is, how do you put robes on him when he hasn't even taken a shower? Shoes on his feet and they're not clean? 
put a robe on and put shoes on his feet and a ring of sonship because my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Do you know the bit that he never said? What he never said was, treat me as one of your servants. That bit he could not say it because the father got back his son. He told that story so vividly and so dramatically that I listened. And when I listened, I had a conviction in my heart. Let me take you back a little bit from my own background. My father was a medium, meaning he had demonic forces, 12 of them, in my own village. My, father, my grandfather worshipped these demons, and all of us did. We had shrines in our village. And these demonic forces were so demanding, every demon wanted every month a pot of beer. That means 12 pots of beer every month, 144 pots of beer in a year. And my grandfather had to produce this, and therefore he married six wives. I have uncles and aunties and cousins and nephews, but the control of those spirits was in our home. I remember one day I went into the shrine and I sat on the stool in that shrine and I called the, the demonic forces. I said, my grandfather's spirits, if you are there, come to me. I think they did because I remember that it wasn't easy for me to come to Jesus Christ. I had a battle with God for three solid nights. I could not sleep. I did not know what was happening. My heart was pumping. I was sweating. I just didn't understand myself. For three nights at conviction, I had a battle going on inside. The Lord is calling me and I'm saying, no way. I need my freedom. I want to be myself. Friends, after three nights, I was tired. I was fed up. And then the Holy Spirit began to speak to me. Now I know it is the Holy Spirit. He said, why don't you try Jesus? So I got out of bed, knelt by my bed, and I said a very ugly but desperate short prayer. I said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me, but may you please give me some sleep as well. <laughs> I hadn't slept for three nights. This good God came into my life gave me sleep, forgave my life, and forgave my sin, and gave me new life. The morning I woke up, I told my doormate, I said I met, I met Jesus Christ, I made a decision. They just laughed at me. They said, did you? I said, yes, I did. They said, why did you make it at night? I said, well, I did. I made the decision, and uh, they said, okay, we'll give you a week. I was such a notorious young man, just like this man, I, I keep hearing his story. I was a lot similar like him because my uncles, my mother's brothers taught me how to drink alcohol. I mean, they're just, they just live in drinking. And I learned how to drink alcohol and I was a stupid drunk at a very tender age. My, my grandfather, the father of my mother, taught me how to smoke bangi, opium. And I, he told me that if you want to be a very intelligent young man, you better smoke opium. So I smoked opium until I was so stupid. And one day I went fishing because I come from the River Nile area. I went fishing and I just got asleep because I was very drunk. Jesus came into my life. Jesus opened my eyes. Jesus showed me the way. Jesus gave me confidence and he gave me identity. Jesus gave me new passion and new desire. Jesus gave me a destiny. And Jesus helped me 
to walk his way. My dear friends, I stand to proclaim the living Jesus with whom I've walked for 40 years. From the age of 18, I am now 58. The Lord Jesus Christ has been so dependable, he has been so reliable, that if I'm going to market anybody or anything, the best I can market is the Lord Jesus Christ to you young people. He called me to be a youth pastor, and I began a youth pastor ministry in the year 1979. I met many young people in that part of Uganda where I was a youth pastor. I was given an area from south to north, or north to south is about 200 miles, and across is about 40, 50 miles along the Nile. We border with Congo on the left and with Sudan in the north. And my bishop told me, you are a teacher, you know young people, I give you the young people, but I don't have transport for you. I started walking. Where I could find young people, I met young people, I shared my heart out with young people, and they came to Jesus Christ. And I saw the Lord do things in the lives of young people. This is the reason why I believe I need to empty myself into young people because I do know that the future of our nations and the future of our church depend on young people. And I, and I meet you. I really honor you, beloved. When I meet you, I am really filled with great admiration for you. Because I do believe that among you, the Lord is raising men and women of tomorrow, men and women who are going to be leaders of our nations and also great people in our church. And I do know that God has a plan and a purpose for your life. I poured my life to the young people. I brought them into Jesus Christ. I taught them what it means to walk in the Lord. I taught them what it means to be a prayerful man or woman. And I taught them what it means to witness. And as the young people grew up in their faith, then the Lord said to me, move on. And I moved on to become an archdeacon. You see, an archdeacon in my church, you must be a bald-headed man or a gray-haired person. And I was a very young man, a guitar-flinging young man. And I arrived in this place, and everybody looked at me and said, he's too young to be the archdeacon. But the Jesus I believe in is very old and very understanding. For six years, I battle with a few things. Number one, I battle in that area with demonic forces. Now, I am not sure whether you follow me when I talk about demonic forces. I used to think the demons were in Africa until I came to England, and I found them there too. We did a ministry of exorcism in England with people who were under the oppression of the power of darkness. You know the thing about Africa is that our situation is black and white, you can tell. The Western world, the enemy is very subtle. Do you know when I go into your malls, I say, Lord, cover me with the blood of Jesus Christ because I don't understand this place. I look at all these things in the mall and I say, where do I start and where do I finish? I get so confused. When I carry my plastic thing, and I know I can spend it wherever I like, but I also know that sometimes you can have an impulse to spend what you don't even have. And so I say, Lord, help me. And I have agreed with my wife, we never go shopping together. <laughs> because my wife will shop, and she'll take time to shop. Me, I don't know how to shop. 
The enemy works in the Western world in a very subtle manner. He is hidden somewhere, and until God gives you discernment, you can never tell. In this area, I found the devil at work. There was occult, there was wizardry, there were all kinds of funny things. The house I went into was so noisy at night, I could not understand what was going on. Doors flung open the very first month when I was in that area, and there was not even a spoon stolen in the house. We did not know what was happening. Friends, the very month I got there, there were not only occultic forces, but there were also robbers who came and attacked a visiting medical team and killed somebody, and his body fell next to our church. And I was frightened. I said to God, I'm in the wrong place. Will you help me? The Holy Spirit said, pray. And we began praying. My wife, myself, two ordained people, a layman. We covenanted, we'll pray. On Fridays from 9 o'clock to 6 o'clock the following day, every Friday, we would fall on our faces and ask God for intervention, for a breakthrough. We cried, and I cried desperately, more or less out of fear. I am so happy that when fear drove me to God, that was the right place. And after six months, things began to happen. As I preached the gospel in the area, people began to receive the Lord. Hearts began to open up. It was like the darkness over the area began to roll away. Friends in America, a hundred or so years ago, did you not used to call Africa the dark continent? And yet that is a continent where the sun shines 12 hours a day, 365 days a year. Why were we dark? Because we did not know God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to thank you because your ancestors brought the gospel to us. I am sorry to say the darkness over Africa has rolled and has come over America and over Europe. I was flying last night all the way from Jacksonville to this place. Your country is well lit by electricity. But the gospel of Christ is at stake in this nation. I call upon you young people to take the challenge of yet lighting again America with the gospel of Jesus Christ that the passion your ancestors had and they came to us and braved every kind of calamities and dangers and wild tribes and animals and diseases a hundred years ago, that passion come back to you, that you may rise up again like the great America politically and militarily, but also in the gospel of Christ, that among you will be counted men and women who will lay down their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This gospel rolled away the darkness over my area and people's eyes lit up, people began to be happy and we began to again come back. And I can tell you within six years, that little place exploded with, 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 with salvation and we were given a diocese and status and I was asked to be the first bishop. I want to ask you friends, the next few days, I'm going to be speaking to you about Jesus Christ and knowing Jesus Christ when he asks his disciples as to who do the world say I am and who do you say I am.
I want to speak to you in the sense that when you finish these next two days, you will be sure that you know who Jesus is. Because I remember the day that I was in the UK after finishing my work in uh, Uganda to come and study. After three years, I had finished my degree and I was packing to go home that fateful morning. As I was staying with my two little kids, two had gone to school, my wife had gone shopping so that we can pack up and go home. I gave lunch to my three-year-old daughter, Deborah. I put her to rest and to have a little nap. She never woke up. She died. I was in the house. This little girl, when the mother wanted her for tea at four o'clock, she picked a dead child. For the first time, death entered our family. And death entered our family when I was in the house. My wife put down the baby and came to me and said, Deborah is dead. I went upstairs and I picked the body of my dear daughter. And I looked at her dead face and I said to God, thank you for giving us Deborah for three years. Thank you for allowing her to be with us as our daughter for three years. Thank you for taking her. It took a week before the body of that little girl was put to rest. God gave me such an energy to preach at the funeral of my own daughter. And the reason was simple. That death is not the final stop. Death is a passage. I came to understand we don't lose our loved ones at all to death. No, we don't. We went home and left the body of our daughter in England, but we knew where she was. Friends, I came to understand that there is something of Christian hope that other religions don't have. I will want to proclaim that as an answer to the dilemma and the fear that mankind have against death. I want to rejoice finally, friends, that in Jesus Christ, God has given me brothers and sisters globally, globally. May I just say one or two words about Dr. Henry Krabbendam? The reason why I'm here is because of this man. Not because we are equally tall. <laughs> this man loves God so much that he has come to my country and brought many of you to come to my country. This man has come with a message of hope to my people. This man come as a gospel preacher and a man whose heart is really big. This man has been wanting me to come to Covenant College for quite a while. I'm a fairly busy man, but this is a very persistent character. <laughs> he determined that I come. And my coming here really is because Dr. Krobenham, a great friend of mine, a man of God, a very determined teacher of the Word of God has given his life for the people of Uganda, my country. May I also thank Covenant College for sending students to come to my country. Many have come to my country, many have shared the gospel with my country, my country people, and we have built a relationship. The reason I'm here too is that I'm coming to build a bridge between Anglicans and the Presbyterians. Because I believe that when we come on the other side of eternity, our denominational labels will remain here. There, we are only those who are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ 
and have the identity from heaven. I come here so that we can begin to work together under the Great Commission that God has called us to be a witnessing community to a world that is so desperate. I come here, friends, to allow you to know that the seed of the gospel planted by your ancestor has grown up and has borne fruit now. That now in Africa, we are reaping the fruits that your ancestors planted there, and I come to provoke you to jealousy so that you too may get up and go out again. I am so sad that once upon a time a church here that was so passionate about mission is no longer the kind of church that I knew. Do you know when I came to England the first time in 1980, I went to a church, Holy Trinity Brompton, some of you know that church, full. Then the very next Sunday, I went to another church down south of England and I found only 12 people and a dog in the church. And I could not believe my eyes and I could not believe what I was hearing. And yet when you see the soccer being played in England, millions of people almost are watching on the television and hundreds are in the stadium. What has happened to the passion? What has happened to that great desire that the Dr. David Livingstone had to come to the middle of Africa and die in Africa and have his heart buried in Africa? What happened? I believe the season has come for the church of Christ to rise up again. Let me just say this. I am banking on you, friends, young people. I am banking on you that God will stir your heart yet again. That God will let you go out and make a sacrifice for the kingdom purpose. The Lord bless you. That's my testimony. It's a bit short, and I think I should stop here. May these next few days be a time when God can speak to us as a people, but also when God can speak to us individually. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your church here in the chapel today. I thank you for the faculty of Covenant College, the leadership of Covenant College. Master, you have raised men and women here like potters to mold the next generation. Father, I pray for wisdom I pray for discernment. I ask you, Lord, to teach them in order to teach the next generation. I pray for the president. I know the burden of a leader can be very heavy at times. But I pray, Lord, that you will not make him groan under the burden of leadership, but rather that he will learn what it means to shift it over to you. He said, you said my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Bless him. I pray for the young men and young women that you have called to come and pass through this institution. Father, I ask that your glory may be revealed upon them, that your power may rest upon each person, that hearts will turn to you, that people will know what you want them to be tomorrow and prepare them now for what you have for them for tomorrow. Lord, I ask too that the Holy Spirit will speak clearly to many, many people about the commission that you have on their lives that they will know for certain the Lord has claim on my life and I want to give my life to Jesus Christ that he may use me to bring transformation to this world. I ask for your blessings, Lord, on this college. Father, as we stay here for the next two days, I pray that the mighty presence of God will settle upon this, on this hill.
I pray that the peace of the Lord will settle on this hill. I also pray that the release of God will bring abundant joy and love here on this hill. And what your purpose this hill to be, this college to be, will honor the name of the only Son of God, the Jesus of Nazareth. And in his mighty name, I pray. Amen. Thank you. The proceeding was provided by Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and available at itunes.covenant.edu.